Welcome back, everyone, to the Raw Prospect Podcast. My name is Amy Nixon. Today is May 18th, 2021. Uh, and joining me, as always, from Austin, Texas, the stat king himself, Michael Ween. What is up, man? What is up? Uh, I'm doing well. We have a busy episode today. Lots going on in the sports world this week. Um, today, we are going to be recapping what just happened. Uh, the Eastern Conference playing games happen tonight, so we'll recap those games. Uh, tomorrow's the Western Conference. We'll preview those two games, and then we're going to talk about the upcoming second major of the year, the PGA Championship being played at Kiowa Island Ocean Course in South Carolina. Uh, that will finish up today's episode. So looking forward to it. Right. It's, it's good to be back. We've, we haven't uh recorded it feels like in a long time so uh it's good to be back okay so um for tonight's games charlotte oh i need to silence that uh charlotte beat uh, charlotte lost to indiana sorry the rust is still there uh charlotte lost to indiana in a absolute rout um and then just now went final the Celtics beat the Wizards with Jason Tatum going for 50 points. Um, so we'll start with the first game of the night, uh, Charlotte versus Indiana. What, what, what were your takeaways from that game? Yeah, so this game was pretty much from the start an absolute slaughter. Um, first from an Indiana Pacers perspective. Oh, and I should mention, I should preface this by saying, I texted you before the game, and I I don't think I was alone in this sentiment. I thought, given that the Pacers had so many injuries, Miles Turner's been out for a long time, TJ Warren's been out, he was one of their um, best you know, scores, especially last year, and then Karis LeVert, who was a guy who was averaging 20-plus points for them. I mean, that's a lot to lose and to expect to come out, even though you have the home court. That's a lot to, you know, overcome. But give credit to the Pacers. Um, they outplayed the Hornets in pretty much every facet of the game. And that's kind of, to put it kindly, I mean, you look at, I'll just give you a couple examples. Um, the Pacers, they shot very well from three. That was, of course, a huge factor. They shot 45.7% from three, 16 out of 35 from the three-point arc, uh, while Charlotte, shot 30%, uh, 12 out of 40 from three. So Hornets couldn't make shots. The Pacers were making their shots, and that alone is enough to make a huge difference in today's NBA when you win the three-point battle by that significant of a margin. Um, and also, uh, from an Indiana perspective, they were just solid offensively. This was one of their better games offensively, uh, not only recently, but this season. Um, and they got key contributions from role players who stepped up in place of the injured players uh, that I mentioned previously. Uh, talking about a guy like Doug McDermott, who came out hot, scored 21 points, four or six from three-point range, 16 of those points coming in the first quarter. He came out firing on all cylinders. And then a guy I really hadn't heard of, I haven't watched a lot of Pacers basketball this year, but O'Shea Brissett, a younger a younger player, um, something to be excited about. If you're a Pacers fan, he really stepped up. He scored 23 points 
on great efficiency, 10 of 14 from the field. So they got TJ McConnell uh, making plays on defense. Uh, they got contributions from a lot of different role players, and that was huge. They needed that in order to win this game. Um, and on sort of an off night for um, the star of the team, DeMontis Sabonis, at least offensively, uh, he was able to um, contribute in other important ways. He grabbed 21 rebounds, dished out nine assists. So while he wasn't scoring at his usual clip, um, he was uh, making the team better and doing the dirty work down the paint. Um, so great all-around performance from Indiana. Now, from a Charlotte's per from a Charlotte perspective, um, they just didn't come out with the necessary amount of energy and intensity. And it was noticeable, especially on the defensive end of the floor. They were playing virtually no defense. Um, and if you were watching the game, you could see that. There's really no other way to put that. Um, I'm sure you could find some statistics. Um, you can just see it from the way Indiana shot the ball pretty much. Um, but, you know, from the Hornets' perspective, this is the last thing I'll say. 59% um, of all minutes logged this season by the Charlotte Hornets were by first, second, or third-year players. That second most in the NBA. Uh, first is the Oklahoma City Thunder, who, of course, have a lot of young talent and are sort of in a rebuilding phase. So, you know, it's kind of expected. They, they, a lot of these players hadn't been, you know, these type of pressure situations before. And I think there's a lot to look forward to uh, if you're a Hornets fan. Um, given the young core that they have in P.J. Washington, Miles Bridges, I mean, man, when he goes up, get out of his way. Um, Lamella Ball, of course, he'll be in the running to, of course, snag that rookie of the year. A lot of, a lot of young talent. Malik Monk is in there in that conversation. So a lot to look forward to if you're a Hornets fan, but they just didn't have it tonight, didn't come out with the energy, intensity, that playoff energy that you need, the focus. Uh, but uh, they'll be an interesting team to watch next year. Right, for sure. And one of the things I kept on thinking about when I was watching this game is I was thinking of some of the parallels that we see in March Madness in that kind of situation where it's a one-game elimination. We saw a lot of parallels to that in that, um, to me, this game was a team with juniors and seniors playing a team full of one and duns right. and Indiana, they, they showed their experience, their grit, and just, they showed their playoff medal really. Um, and Charlotte, they, they showed their age really. I mean, they, you just mentioned it. 59% of their players are third year player or below. So um, the future is bright in Charlotte, but Tonight it wasn't their night. They didn't. They didn't really bring it. They didn't have the energy, and I think, um, I think having the home court advantage played a bigger role than a lot of us may have thought. I think some of those uh, contributions from the role players that Indiana got, I think that can be attributed to them being able to get a home game. Uh, so, I think that was really important. Right. I mean, there's really nothing else you can say. It really just came down to the fact um, 
and I don't want to be like this guy, but I stopped watching after the third quarter. Um, I watched up into that point, but it was pretty much out of hand at that point. Um, the Celt or not the Celtics, the Pacers had a 25 to 30 point lead for much of that second half. I was hoping maybe uh, like mid second quarter around that area that Charlotte might be able to ramp up the defensive intensity. Um, they, they showed, you know, a couple flashes offensively in that quarter. Uh, and they, I thought maybe they could cut it to 10 at half and maybe have a chance, give themselves a better chance, but that never happened. The Pacers continued to execute, give credit to guys like Malcolm Brogdon um, for doing a good job defensively when he was matched up against LaMelo Ball. He had an off night. Um, and as we've said, the role players, I think, um, should be the MVPs of this game. Doug McDermott, O'Shea Brissett, McConnell had some good plays in there and all the others. So credit to the Indiana Pacers. Um, they will move on to face the loser of our next game, which was the Washington Wizards and the Boston Celtics. The Celtics, as you mentioned, won uh, this game with Jason Tatum taking matters into his own hands, dropping 50 points on a 62.3% true shooting percentage, which is just insane. Um, and, you know, not necessarily he had to drop 50, but he needed to carry a decent load given that Boston was lacking in many areas. Uh, Jalen Brown going down just a week or so ago. I think at the right about the time we recorded our last podcast, the news was reported that he was going to be out with season-ending wrist surgery or hand surgery, whatever it is. But Tatum, as we've seen him do it, um, or at least I've seen him do it firsthand in the past month or so, um, when he dropped 60 on my Spurs um, to win a game in Boston, uh, we knew he was capable of this. And so he took matters into his own hands and uh, beat Bradley Beal and Russell Westbrook, uh, who coming into this game, the Wizards were definitely the team playing better basketball. So I just want to get your thoughts on what occurred um, in this game. Well, he, obviously Jason Tatum dropped 50, and that's huge. But another thing is um, the fact that since it's a one-game scenario, um, the biggest flaw – of the Boston Celtics is their bench. And that didn't matter tonight since all their starters were playing so many minutes. Um, I think in the one game scenario, I think it played to their advantage because you could just have Tatum in there and all of your main contributors in there for, for the majority of the game, rather than having to delegate minutes out to some of these bench guys who may not be playing as well. So I think um, early in that first half, we saw the Wizards uh, have a huge advantage in bench points, but that didn't end up mattering. It, it, it's all just a one-game scenario. So it all just comes down to the stars, basically. I think that's just what the NBA wanted. They want to see the stars, the big money makers, um, show up in the big moments because that's uh, – those are the biggest headliners. Right. Um, 
Credit to Brad Stevens and the Celtics for coming in, taking care of business in this game against, the, as I mentioned, a hot Wizards team who I think, I don't have the exact stat, but they had won like 15 of their past 20, 22 games coming in. Uh, so they were hot. But it was clear to me that while he did score 22 points, uh, Bradley Beal didn't really look like himself. He had an off night from the field, 10 out of 25. Really not himself. Uh, didn't really perform up to expectations. Um, he had mentioned in one of his post-game pressers that he was playing through something and, you know, is playing through an injury in the past couple games or to close out the regular season. Uh, he just didn't look like himself. Fell below expectations for a guy who finished the regular season second in the scoring race just behind Steph Curry at about 31 per game. And then Russell Westbrook, I mean, what do you think about his his performance tonight? Well, um, I mean, I can't uh, I can't say I didn't expect it. I mean, I it, it's very disappointing. I'd say um, just the fact that he didn't he wasn't able to uh, control the pace better to his liking. Um, that that's what I expected coming into the game that he would get out and run in transition and control the pace a little bit more. Uh, Kenny Smith actually uh, mentioned this in the post game. I was just watching. Uh, if the Wizards were going to win this game, they needed to have this be a much more high-scoring game because that's more in their ballpark. That's that's more the style of play that they like. Um, with Russell Westbrook not being able to control the pace at, like like I expected him to, um, he's just not that effective in the half court. I mean, he's still solid, but he's not he's not the player that he used to be in the half court. He when he's in the fast break, that's where he's most effective. And he just didn't get many of those opportunities tonight. That I mean, that's the bottom line. Right. Um, so you know, just and really what really, you know, cemented this game for Boston was when Tatum really took over the game at the start of that third quarter. He scored um, 13 of Boston's first 22 points in that third quarter and just took off from there. And he was getting to the free throw line at a pretty effective rate. I think like 17 or 18 of his points actually came at the free throw stripe. So good for him, good for Boston. But something – you know, it's been an injury-riddled season for Boston. I believe that Robert Williams and uh, Marcus Smart did go down with injuries um, somewhere in there. I think in the second quarter, third quarter. Um, I don't remember exactly, but we'll have to see what the reports are on those two guys. Because um, uh, if they're down, uh, they really have zero shot uh, against um, – the, the Nets, um, that's who they will be playing in the first round as a seven seed. But we'll get to our playoff predictions uh, in a later week episode. So uh, with that, oh, do you want to like talk about um, the Pacers-Wizards matchup or do you want to jump to the West? Um, I, th- I think we can save the Pacers-Wizards matchup for later this week. Let's, let's, okay. let's jump to the West. That, that's going to be pretty interesting. Okay. So, for those of you who don't know, the Western Conference plan looks like this. 
So the 10 seed San Antonio Spurs will play in the first game tomorrow at the number nine seed Memphis Grizzlies. Uh, the winner of that game will go on to face the loser of the number eight seed Golden State Warriors and the number seven seed Los Angeles Lakers. The winner of that game will effectively get the seven seed in the West and uh, face the Suns in the first round of the playoffs. So um, given that, let's start with the first game tomorrow. Uh, San Antonio at Memphis. Um, do you want me to start it off since I'm a Spurs fan? Right. Go, go right ahead, man. Okay. So for San Antonio, um, what I look at here, I'm going to need um, a complete game defensively. They really struggled defensively in the past um, against Memphis. Um, they have, I think they have the personnel to do it, but the, sometimes the discipline and sort of this younger roster that Popovich has out on the floor can be a little spotty at times. Um, defending the paint is going to be key. Uh, San Antonio has not been good uh, defending the paint. They're allowing an average of 50.2 points per game in the paint this regular season, fifth worst in the league. I'm going to need uh, Yaka Pirtle to continue to be a very good rim protector, and I'm going to need him to get on the glass. Um, effectively, I'm going to need Gorgie Diang, the former Memphis Grizzly, who's been playing well, uh, better lately after coming back from injury. The Spurs picked him up off the buyout market. I'm going to need him to make solid contributions on the defensive floor. Um, and Drew Eubanks, he's going to need to play a big role. I um, mean, that's the ability, but um, I think the bigs will be key here because that uh, Memphis pick and roll with John Morant Jaron Jackson Jr., uh, that's killed the Spurs in the past. And as I just mentioned, I think they have the personnel. You know, DeJounte Murray is a really good um, perimeter defender, um, the best on the team. Uh, now that, I guess, Derek White is out, uh, I'd be a lot more confident if he was playing, but he's not. He's dealing with some sort of foot injury. Um, and we also can't have Memphis replicate uh, the previous three-point success that they seem to have against San Antonio. Um, in the past two games versus San Antonio this season, Memphis shot 32 out of 65 from three. Uh, that's over 50%. Can't have that happen. They're going to have to get out, contest three-pointers. And then most importantly, I think, will be securing the rebound. You cannot let them have second chances. So defense, I'm going to need – them to bring the focus defensively. Um, I know Pop will probably echo that sentiment to them pregame, uh, but that's just from a San Antonio perspective. Offensively, I'm going to need – we've been inconsistent shooting the ball from three. Um, I think we're like 29th in three-point uh, makes per game or something. That's not going to cut it. I'm going to need uh, Lonnie Walker to make – contributions from the outside I just need a solid game from everyone I can't have an off night from DeRozan or an off night from Keldon Johnson an off night you know I don't know it's just we haven't seemed to fare well against Memphis and I'll get your take from a Memphis perspective but from a San Antonio perspective defend the paint don't allow second chance points uh 
defend the three better than you have in the past against Memphis and just play smart basketball on the offensive end. Get good shots. Uh, try to knock down a good portion of your three-pointers and don't turn the ball over. Uh, San Antonio is actually very good at that uh, during the regular season. So continue that because uh, you don't want John Morant and those guys out on the fast break. So that's just me coming from a Spurs fanatic perspective, but I want to get your perspective. Well, I think one thing the Spurs have over the Grizzlies is veteran presence. Um, Patty Mills, Rudy right. Gay, Marta Rosen, these are all guys who have uh, legit deep playoff experience. Uh, maybe not Rudy Gay as much, but he's definitely a veteran. Um, and I think if San Antonio is to win this game, I think uh, either Rudy Gay or Patty Mills has to get hot. I think um, for San Antonio to be in a good position to win this game, Patty Mills has to get hot from deep because – um, the three-point battle, I think, is what's going to win this game. These are these are two teams who struggle from beyond the arc, uh, just just in general. And I think the three-point battle and the rebounding battle, I think that's going to be really telling as to who wins this game. Um, and I think you hit it right on the head with uh, defending the paint because that's what John Moran does, right? So he he just gets two feet in the lane. He gets downhill, gets two feet in the lane, and then from there he can facilitate, hit his little floater, get to the basket. Um, once he gets two feet in the lane, he he's one of the most lethal players in the NBA once he's in there. So um, it's going to have to be a, a team uh, a team defense to handle right. John Morant. It can't just be one, uh, one-on-one. Uh, it has to be collectively – like rotations have to be on point. Everything has to be on point because he's right. going to put a lot of pressure on that San Antonio defense. Right. Um, it's just going to have to be one defensively for San Antonio. But then for Memphis, um, I look for them to get Darren Jackson Jr. established early. Um, I, I like that he's aggressive from, from the three-point line, but I think he can do a lot more in terms of uh, – being a presence in the paint and being someone who can make that little hook shot or have some post moves. Um, obviously they have Valanchunas in there, but I think they can throw in a little bit more of Jaron Jackson jr. In that post area. I think he can be really effective down there. Um, and then Dylan Brooks as well. He's going to play an extremely key role. He has to stay out of foul trouble um, because he has to be in there to defend DeMar DeRozan. That's who I'd assume he's going to be on uh, for most of this game. So he has to be disciplined defensively and not get too overzealous. Um, He likes to get under people's skin, but um, it might play to his advantage since it's a playoff-style atmosphere. Maybe the refs will swallow their whistles a little bit, but he has to stay out of foul trouble and the only way he's going to be able to help his team is if he's in there in the game. So that's going to be really big for them because he's super important to their team in terms of just their energy overall. He, he's right. down. Right. Uh, one thing I, one other thing I wanted to mention 
the last time that these two teams met back in March, I believe, um, LaMarcus Aldridge was still on the team playing uh, starting center. Um, and hopefully, I'm hoping that while Aldridge may provide, you know, more floor spacing and a little bit more offensive punch um, from an offensive perspective, I'm hoping that Jakob Pertle can um, be a lot better in defending uh, the pick and rolls because Aldridge is just not, not good at that. And obviously he's retired since then, um, but he just wasn't, they were picking on him all game defensively in the pick and rolls situation. So hopefully Jakob Pertle, who has a little bit more mobility, is a good rim protector, good defensively, plays without fouling most of the time. Hopefully um, he can be a key in this um, game. Um, but, you know, that's a good point. Um, hopefully San Antonio, as a Spurs fan, hopefully the veterans play well, um, especially Rudy Gay. We need his contributions and scoring off the bench because Patty Mills has been slumping as of late. Hopefully he can get it back for this game. Um, but I'm looking, you know, hoping for the best. And if not, well, guess what? We get a top 12 pick, and that'll be good for us to continue to um, rebuild because uh, that's really where we're at right now. And who knows what will happen uh, with DeMar DeRozan hitting the free agency market. But we'll talk about that another day. All right. So from a lot of people's eyes, uh, the most intriguing game of the play-in is this next game, Golden State in Los Angeles, um, the Lakers, who won, I believe, their last four or five games. Um, so they're coming in, playing pretty well. They got their players back. LeBron's back a little hobbled, but it shouldn't hinder him too much, I don't think. Uh, Davis is back to playing uh, like Anthony Davis. They have Dennis Schroeder back now, which is huge. Um, but they're hosting the Golden State Warriors, who are also coming in in good form. They've won their last four games of the regular season. The last against Memphis to clinch this eight spot, which is huge. Um, it's super advantageous because if you lose, you still get another shot. Um, so... For me, um, personally, I'll address it from a Golden State perspective because I think from a Lakers perspective, it's pretty obvious, um, I guess, what they need to do to win. Um, but for Golden State to make this interesting, um, obviously we're going to need Steph Curry to carry a pretty decent load offensively. Uh, we've been saying it for a while now. Um, and it's what he has to do if Golden State wants to continue to win. Uh, but he's obviously going to need help to beat this Lakers team. Um, and that will need to come in the form of guys like Draymond Green, who's actually been playing more like Draymond Green as of late. Past 10 games, he's averaging over um, 10 points, um, which is really good considering that when he scores in double figures this year, um, the Warriors are 15-4. and four. Um, so really good when Draymond helps them out. So he's going to need to be big on defense, creating that energy, distributing the ball, and then giving them, 
you know, some buckets on the offensive end. And Andrew Wiggins is going to be huge. Um, so, uh, but an interesting stat I pulled out um, and I saw earlier when I was doing a little bit of research on this game, uh, Steph Curry, although he's arguably had one of the best seasons of his career, finished leading the league in scoring, um, was amazing in the month of, what month was it? April, uh, that he was just lights out from the field, uh, led the league in scoring, won the scoring title, made a ton of threes, usual Steph Curry stuff, right? MVP type stuff. Uh, but at the Staples Center, he's actually had his fair share of struggles. And I don't know how much this will matter, but it's a pretty good sample size. And his past eight appearances at the Staples Center, um, he's a combined 16 out of 77 from three-point land. That's 20.8%. His worst shooting percentage at any venue in the NBA. So they can't have that um, continue if they want to win this game, obviously. But I want to get your perspective. Um, that was just an interesting stat. So does that stat include games against the Clippers as well? Um, I am not sure, but I will double check while you talk about okay. the game. Um, well, that's, that's actually really interesting. I, actually, I saw a stat um, that earlier this year that Curry was actually averaging uh, 23 against the Lakers on 43% shooting and like 27% from three. So uh, not good there. But uh, anyway, this game – uh, one interesting thing is the matchup of LeBron uh, with Wiggins defending LeBron specifically. Um, Wiggins, we know, um, can be a little bit inconsistent at times. But this year, he has committed to the defensive end of the court. And, I, I, you know, he's been their premier perimeter defender. He's been really, really good. So what I want to see... What, what, what will be interesting for me, at least, is whether Wiggins' length will be able to affect LeBron a little bit, especially since he's still coming off of that injury. He might not be able to cut as well um, as he normally would. Uh, so if Wiggins can at least make things a little bit difficult for LeBron, um, then that leaves Anthony Davis. And that's that's a little bit more dicey if you're the Warriors because – your big rotation without Wiseman consists of a lot of guys under 6'10", to right. put it simply. I mean, they are a very small team. So the big thing here is going to be rebounding the ball, if you're the Warriors, and also just making things difficult on LeBron. Because if, if you can make LeBron – have a tough time obviously he's going to get his he's lebron james but if you can make things difficult um, you can slow that lakers offense down enough to just stay in the game just keep stay within reach is that's really all you need to do because from there steph curry can do the rest because right. we've seen him go nuclear so many times it's it's a one game scenario so all he all would that would need to happen is just for him to have one streak of however many threes, and then it's done. You know, it's uh, 
it's a scary scenario if you're the Stephen Curry, he's probably the last player in the NBA that you'd want to see in terms right. of a one-game scenario. Right. Yeah, you hit it right on the head. Um, really, aside from Curry and obviously the stars, LeBron and AD, um, I'm really watching Draymond Green, and I'm really watching Andrew Wiggins. They're both going to need to contribute in big ways if the Warriors want to win. Now, to clarify the stat that I mentioned, um, it's Steph Curry against the Lakers at Staples Center. Oh, okay, okay. It doesn't include games against the Clippers. In his past eight games against the Lakers at Staples Center, 1 for 10, 0 for 10, 4 for 10, 3 for 9, 2 for 10, 1 for 9, 3 for 12, and 2 for 7. That's where you get the combined 16 out of 77, 20.8%. That's his lowest, I believe, at any venue over that span. So, um, and, you know, credit the Lakers. They're a very good defensive team. I believe they're still number one uh, defensively in the NBA or at least, you know, in the top three, top five. So, um, yeah, it, I think both of these games, I'm hoping, will be competitive till the end. That's obviously what we hope. I hope my Spurs can win. But if not, uh, credit to Memphis. Uh, they were in the playoffs. Were they in the playoffs last year? No, they were in the play-in. No, they were in the play-in. So, um, you know, we'll see. Uh, if we don't win, we'll get a good draft pick. And then for the Warriors, it'd be nice to see them beat the Lakers. But – um, if you're asking me who I'm going to pick, I think we should make picks, um, to close out this segment. Okay. Um, I'm going to go with the Lakers and I think it'll be close, like coming in, definitely be close, um, in the third quarter. I think the Lakers will start to pull away, um, like late third, early fourth fourth but I think the Lakers will win it, it won't be a blowout but I think they'll win by a decent margin um and then San Antonio Memphis uh I'm gonna pick the Spurs because I'm not gonna pick against my team okay um for that Golden State game I'm gonna pick I'm gonna pick the Lakers just simply from the fact that I think Anthony Davis is going to have a big game. I don't think the Warriors have the size to right. match up with Anthony Davis. Um, but for the Grizzlies-Spurs game, that, that's a tough pick. I, I'm i going to go with the Grizzlies because I think um, their, their youth against the Warriors, they got exposed a little bit, and I think they – can kind of learn from that experience a little bit. Um, and I think I think Jaw will show up a lot stronger this game. Um, yeah. But before we finish out this topic, um, for that Golden State Lakers game, um, obviously we picked our two main role players for like role player X factors for that Spurs uh, Grizzlies game. What would you say is your role player X factor for both teams in that Warriors Lakers game? Um, 
Well, I think we kind of mentioned it from a Golden State perspective, but from a Laker perspective, um, damn, putting me on the spot here. Uh, here, I, I can give you mine first. All right. Go um, ahead. So for the Warriors, for me, I think it would be Jordan Poole. Um, he's been their sixth man recently, the hopping into that scoring role, and he's been on fire as of late. So if he can hit a couple threes, that would be huge for them. Um, and then the Lakers, I'm going to say KCP because he's been shooting it really, really good all year. But now that LeBron and AD's back, he's going to have a lot of open looks, so he's going to have to hit those shots if the Lakers are going to have a shot or if the Lakers are going to be in the position they want, I mean. Right. Uh, I wouldn't argue that. Um, both of those guys uh, will be key. I look at a guy like Kyle Kuzma. Um, I don't know. I just always sort of look at Kyle Kuzma when I watch the Lakers. Um yeah, I mean, him and KCP are going to be key. Uh, not only for this game, but if the Lakers are to make a run deep into the playoffs. Uh, now, since they're sort of at a um, disadvantage being uh, seven seed and having to go on the road. So, I don't know. We'll see. Um, we'll see what happens. This is why the NBA, uh, you know, drew up this playing tournament. Um, to incentivize the some of these borderline playoff contending teams uh, to not, you know, just throw it all in the bag at the end of the season to actually want to compete and to get into this for an opportunity to play themselves into the playoffs. Um, so I think it's I think it's worked out really well so far, and hopefully uh, we'll get two great games tomorrow, uh, which can carry the momentum over into the weekend for the playoffs. Um, right. So uh, if you don't have any other closing remarks, we can move on to our next. Right. Yeah, we will move on here to our PGA championship uh, preview. So this week, um, starting Thursday at Kiowa Island, um, PGA championship 2021. Um, so this, this, course hosted uh in 2012 as well where rory mcelroy run won so uh interesting factor there because he's actually coming in on in good form but we'll mention that a little bit later um but this is a coastal course um not a lot of trees um so this course really gets hit by the wind coming from the ocean um and this course is a beast from the tips, like 7,500 yards, I believe. Like, just a huge course. Um, so, it'll be interesting to see this week whether the the bombers rise to the top like we see many times in these major championships. Right. And actually, to be more specific um... – Kiowa Island, it's the ocean course located in South Carolina, a couple miles outside of Charleston. Uh, uh, it's playing a beast, as you mentioned. Uh, it's playing at an official scorecard garbage of 7,876 yards. 
uh, even that, longer than I said. That is the longest. It will be the longest in major championship history. Um, so it's quite a beast, especially with the wind. Winds can get up to 20 to 30 miles per hour, um, as they did back in 2012. Uh, Rory McIlroy actually um, dominated that. He won it by eight strokes, which I believe is the most um, in PGA Championship history. He was like kind of the sort of the only player uh, to play well uh, that week. So um, he'll be a storyline, especially given the fact that he's coming off a win just two weeks ago at the Wells Fargo. So he's sort of rounding into form after quite a big slump. Um, but uh, more about the course, um, Kiowa Island, as you mentioned, located on the coast of the Atlantic Ocean, uh, it sports 10 oceanfront or oceanside holes, if that makes any sense. So the ocean runs along the side of 10 holes and that's actually the, the most of any course in North America. Uh, so you have the wind, you have a bunch of water, the ocean, um, tough conditions uh, given that the PGA Championship typically plays pretty tough um, no matter what course it's being played at. Um, and as you mentioned last time the Kiowa, um, Kiowa hosted a major championship it was back in 2012 and Roy McIlroy won that tournament shooting 13 under, one by eight strokes, uh, pretty much dominated that tournament start to finish. So uh, let's get in. So that's kind of the course overview. Um, let's get into uh, our favorites to win because uh, that's what everyone is here to, here to know. So who do you have on your list of uh, favorites to win this week? Um, well, I have some basically tier one names, some tier two names, maybe, and um, some dark horse picks as well. So um, my tier one, um, Roy McIlroy, he's at the top of my list. Um, just, just trusting that he's in good form, basically. And um, also just the memories of – having won there in the past in that tournament, um, that helps as well. Um, so hopefully he'll get those good vibes going, get that putter going and right. get, get some momentum early. Um, and then I also have, uh, let me see my list here. I also have Dustin Johnson, uh, number one player in the world, obviously, but, the, you mentioned a ton of oceanfront holes. So Dustin Johnson being a player that hits that little baby fade, he has a he has a go-to shot that he can count on is what I'm getting at here. So on those tight holes along the ocean, you got to have a shot where you can actually pick a spot and trust that the ball will curve how you want to. And He's one of those guys on tour where he's going to be able to trust that because he he has that uh, ability to call his shots. So he's another guy that I could see playing really well at this course, given that how long it is as well. He's a bomber. Um, another guy is uh, Lee Westwood. I he, he's he's on my tier two list, um, but 
given the fact, given the run that he went on before the Masters this year, I think he went into the Masters and maybe he got a little bit ahead of himself. And he obviously he didn't have a great week that week. Um, had, went in with high expectations. I don't think Lee Westwood would win, but I think with how how good his ball striking is, I think he's one of the best ball strikers of all time. I think it's always just been his short game that's held him back. And now that he's putting well, um, I think he has as good a shot as any to be right there on Sunday. And then from there, really anything can happen. Um, uh, another guy on my list is actually uh, Abraham Answer, who – uh, just two weeks ago, you mentioned Roy McIlroy winning. Uh, in that same week, Abraham Answer was right there in contention. Um, he's a guy um, from Mexico, one of the few Mexican players on tour. Uh, he's also one of the best ball strikers in the world. Uh, so he's extremely accurate. And the thing that's going to be the key for him, just like most of these players, it's just a putter, but him even more so just given the fact that he hits a lot of greens and he's going to have to make a lot of those long birdie putts because he's going to have long irons into the greens since he's not the longest hitter out there. So he's not going to be getting the ball super close to the hole. So if he's going to have a chance and be in contention, he's going to have to make some long putts. Okay. Um, I don't necessarily disagree with any of those picks, but I just – you mentioned um, Roy McIlroy and Dustin Johnson, um, and they obviously can't be counting – can't be counted out. Um, don't um, mistake me for saying that I'm counting them out, but I just have um, a couple questions about Roy McIlroy. I need to see him do this um, consistently. He's been working with a sports psychologist as of late, so maybe that's changed his mindset. He's obviously coming off a win um, and playing a lot better. I just – I don't know if I can count on him uh, coming into this week, but we'll see. It'd be great. Um, he obviously has an advantage given that he's won here before. He knows what the conditions are going to be like. Um, he's 32 now. He's been left off a lot of these favorite and major lists due to his recent prolonged slump that I've mentioned multiple times already. Um, but, you know, it changed when he won two weeks ago at the Wells Fargo, and now he's front of mind again um, in a lot of fans' minds, and the golf world is wondering uh, if he can make, like, a mid-career. We've been wondering this for a while now, if he can make, like, a mid-to-late career run at another handful of majors, as he's already had – he's already won four, um, two at the PGA – uh, 2012 and 2014 at Valhalla. So not counting him out, but I need to see a little more. Um, hopefully he can be in contention. It'd be good for the, from a, like a watching perspective. And then from, for Dustin Johnson, number one golfer in the world has all the tools to win. Uh, but um, I believe um, he hasn't been playing all that well as of late. And obviously that can change. And, you know, a snap of a finger, you can get into a rhythm pretty quickly. But since a top 10 at the Genesis Invitational in February, he has uh, he missed the cut at the Masters and only has uh, 
one other top 45 finish. Uh, so he hasn't necessarily been playing up to Dustin Johnson tight, um, I guess, like the way you expect Dustin Johnson right. to play. But the, the level. You can't count him out. Now, for my favorites, um, I have some guys you didn't mention. Um, I'm looking at Jordan Spieth. He's a favorite, 14 to 1 odds. Obviously playing very well coming in. He's looking to complete the career Grand Slam. The PGA Championship is the one uh, major that's kind of avoided him um, in his career. He hasn't really played well at the PGA. Um, But coming in, he is um, in good form. He ranks fourth in straight strokes gained approach, which is going to be a key stat here in this tournament, given the conditions over his last 24 rounds. And over the past three months, uh, nobody on tour has gained more strokes per round than Jordan Spieth, 2.34 strokes gained per round. I think the key for Spieth, though, is going to be obviously uh, the driver off the tee. If that gets squirrely and he's off with um, the driver, uh, it could be a rough week for him. But I think if he can keep his driver in play, uh, and, you know, save par and, you know, not let, you know, a couple, I guess, sort of blow up holes get to him because that can really take you out of a tournament like this. Uh, the way he's playing, especially from a short game perspective, he could be in the running. Um, I have obviously Morikawa is defending champion. He's kind of, you know, a little far down the list, but 30 to one odds. He's first in strokes gained T to green and first in strokes gained approach over the last 24 rounds. So he's playing well. One of the best uh, iron players on tour um, can hit a lot of greens, hit a lot of shots. He's not very long. So I think if the wind's really blowing, that could maybe put him at a little bit of a disadvantage, but I look at it. I mean, he's a storyline looking to defend his championship from last year. And he obviously has the ability to win. Uh, Victor Holland's a guy I've been looking at a lot lately. Um, playing well, back-to-back third-place finishes at the Valspar in the Wells Fargo, where Rory won a couple weeks ago. Um, and his putter's been hot. Um, eight strokes gained putting over the past two tournaments. So if he can continue that, he's on a lot of people's lists um, for – the next first time major winner Uh, five of the past six major champions have been first time major winners. That includes Morikawa's win um, back in last year at the PGA. So, um, and then I don't think you can count out Justin Thomas. Um, He obviously has had some success as of late at Pete Dye design courses. He won at TPC Sawgrass. But the players hasn't necessarily been playing Justin Thomas like golf as of late, but I don't think you can count him out. Um, and it seems like, I don't know why, but like Kadeki Matsuyama, ever since his <laughs> master's victory has kind of fallen into like, nobody is talking about him. Um, now I get that he, it's really hard to win back-to-back majors and all that, but and he hasn't played a lot since that time. But, you know, every part of his game 
um, seemed to be in really good form the last time we saw him. So I know that there's a lot of guys near the top of the betting odds, but I don't think you can count any of those guys out. Um, so what do you think? Right. And uh, predicting before like a major championship, that's probably one of the hardest things to predict in terms of just really anything in sports. Cause it's so, it's so random, you know, right. um, going back to what you said earlier, when you were talking about Jordan Spieth, um, the one reason I didn't pick Spieth uh, as one of my, my picks is just, I don't think his strengths and his weaknesses really match up well for this course. Um, you mentioned the length of the course, um, but just beyond that though, it's also just a incredibly difficult driving course, just right. being able to hit the fairway, you know, um, Pete Dye really likes to make um, just the sight lines for different shots, really intimidating, especially off the tee. Um, and Jordan Spieth, um, over the course of his career hasn't done well on Pete Dye design courses just generally. Um, and I think the driver, like you said, is going to be really important for him. If he has the driver going, then definitely, I think he'll be right there. Just given the fact that his putter is the great equalizer, he's going to be like, he's going to be there if he's able to get that driver going. But, um, since it's such a hard driving golf course and that's the weakness of his game, I've, just found it a little bit more difficult picking him uh, for this event. Um, and one more thing, uh, Rory McIlroy. Um, I noticed something different in his game at the Wells Fargo as well. I, that I didn't mention um, his swing just, um, just in general, it, it looks a lot more smooth. Um, I, I don't know. Like there's no way for me to really like prove that. But um, his swing looks a lot more on plane. It just looks smoother. Um, before, he had this tendency to go too far inside and then come over the top slightly, lose it out to the right. Um, you can become really sporadic that way if you get off plane. Uh, so now that he's back on plane and he's swinging smooth, it, it seems like he's uh, becoming a lot more consistent um, just in general with all of his clubs. So that's really good to see. Yeah, you make two very good points there. You obviously know more golf than I do. I'm not going to argue with you. Obviously, with Spieth, and I think I said it, the driver does make you nervous. And if you can't hit the driver, especially at this course, you can't hit fairways, you're not going to have much of a chance. And then I didn't really – I watched some on Sunday when Rory won and it looked better. So, you know, but you know, I just need to see it. Hopefully I'm hoping for the best. I really like Rory McIlroy, um, but, and it's been a while since he's won a major. I'd like to see him get back in that column, but you know, we'll see. Um, I wanted to, before we like sign off um, and finish up this segment in the podcast overall, I wanted to mention for the fans out there who are going to be watching um, some of the feature groups that are going to be on early in the morning on Thursday. Um, if you have ESPN plus, it'll be there. And then I think the live coverage starts at noon. 
on ESPN. But in the morning, if you have ESPN Plus, um, you can watch um, a couple really good feature groups here. 8.44 a.m. I'm not sure if these times are – I'm pretty sure these times are Eastern, but I'm not totally sure. But anyways, uh, 8.44 a.m., it's Morikawa, Bryson DeChambeau, and Hideki Matsuyama. Um, So all those guys are like – have won a major in the past year. Um, Matsuyama coming off his win at um, the Masters, the Shambo at the U.S. Open last year, and then Morikawa at the PGA last year. So they put all those guys together. That should be an interesting group. Um, 8.33 a.m., you have Rory McIlroy, who we just talked about, Justin Thomas, who I mentioned, and then Brooks Kepka. Um, who not a lot of people are talking about. He's obviously recovering from some injuries, so I guess that plays a factor into it. But he's he's played well at PGA Championships of past, um, so I guess he really can't be counted out. Um, so that's another um, really interesting group. Uh, eight twenty, and I know I'm kind of going backwards in time here, but eight twenty-two a.m. You have Xander Shoffley, who's been in contention at majors as of late. Yeah, I really Victor like Hoff- Sanders Shuffley. Yeah, Victor Hovland, another young young gun who I mentioned, and then Lee Westwood, who I believe you talked about. Right. Um, so another good group there. Uh, early in the morning, you have Ricky Fowler, Adam Scott, uh, and Tyrell Hatton. Uh, so these are just sort of the groups. And then in the afternoon, you're going to get to see when the live coverage starts on ESPN. Um, you'll get to see John Rahm play with Tommy Fleetwood and Patrick Reed. That's an interesting group. Um, wouldn't be surprised if a winner came out of that group. Um, uh, 1.58 p.m. near 2 o'clock, you have Spieth, Webb Simpson, and Will Zalatoris, who was a big surprise at the Masters, um, finishing top five. And then later in the afternoon, Dustin Johnson, Shane Lowry, and Sergio Garcia. So a lot of good feature groups um, for the opening rounds of the PGA Championship. So, right. And one thing I'll say about the PGA is um, it may not be the most prestigious major in the world, but one thing they do get right every year is the feature groups. They always hit with those feature groups. Right, and it's always been – one of the, if not the strongest field in golf. Um, 99 of the top 100 players are competing this week. And I think the one player who's not uh, would be the likes of Tiger Woods, but I'm not completely sure on that. Um, So uh, I'm not sure he's like falling in the rankings since he's dealing with personal circumstances. But um, anyways, um, I think if we don't have anything else to say, um, that's going to be it for tonight's episode of the Raw Prospect Podcast. Right. And before we sign off here, guys, um, we want to make one another uh, – one another – another <laughs> announcement here before we sign off. Um, we're actually going to be covering the WNBA this year. Uh, so uh, keep on the lookout for that. That will be on our next episode, most likely uh, coming – this weekend uh friday hopefully um so stay on the lookout for that 
We're going to be following the WNBA hopefully pretty closely this year. Um, and we'll, we'll get into some of the politicky things in the next episode once we talk about it. But uh, yeah. Right. Uh, thanks for watching. Hold Subscribe, on. like, share. Um, do you have anything to say? Yeah, one thing I wanted to say, um, WNBA, um, we're going to be covering that. We're going to be talking about the importance of, like, why we want to cover um, women's basketball um, going into the future. And then also um, the main, the meat of Friday, Thursday or Friday's episode, whenever we do it, will obviously be our annual uh, playoff predictions, NBA playoff predictions, which will be right. Very interesting. And then um, probably not on Friday, but in our next episode afterwards, um, we'll hopefully get to get into like our draft recap, which is something we've been hoping to do for a while. And maybe some baseball. There's a lot of things going on in the world of baseball that hopefully we'll get into in the next week or two. So that's all I want to say. Just keep on the lookout. As Emmy said, like, subscribe, share with your friends. Uh, who like sports and we'll see you next time yeah even if they don't like sports make them watch it anyway just force right. them just tie them to a chair and watch it you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> peace out y'all peace out